everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And we have a little bit of a spooky episode planned for you today. I have Nurse Papa. So, so happy to have you back. You're so much fun. I always enjoy um, our banter back and forth. It's always so much fun. So good to have you back. Thank you, Tina. It's, it's great to be here as always. If you guys are listening for the first time, Nurse Papa's been on several times now. He has a book called Nurse Papa. He also has a podcast that's kind of new. Uh, the book will be released in a few months, but the podcast, you started that, what, in January, I believe? I did, yes. There's only four episodes out right now. So adorable podcast that you guys should definitely go listen to. David, what's the most recent episode about? So the most recent episode is called A Slice of Fatherhood. And you know, all my podcasts kind of deal with um, parenthood and you know, my perspective as a pediatric nurse going through life as a parent as well. And in this particular episode, I kind of lose it in public, in a Costco actually. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised by that because as a pediatric nurse, I'm always able to kind of be the sound mind in the room and kind of bring people together and take care of people. And it wasn't until I became a dad that I realized that when you have your own kids, they can kind of assault you on a genetic level and you will lose it. So this episode is about a quite public um, incident of me completely losing my mind and hopefully finding some perspective in it. I love it. I love the vulnerability. I, I think that that is so therapeutic for people. It's therapeutic for you to be able to, to say those things out loud. And it's so incredibly therapeutic for parents to hear yeah. that, that, other people go through these same things. It's totally normal. And then you offer some advice to help get through those times and help, you know, maybe maybe some alternatives to help you handle things differently in the future. So yeah. you guys definitely go check that out. For Absolutely. Sure. I think, you know, that's why people listen to all types of shows like yours and like mine to, you know, find a common experience and to understand that we all go through these same, same things as humans, you know, the goods, the bad you know, all these things are what makes us who we are. So having said that, so I did say we had a little bit of a, a creepy, We every uh, Halloween cue, the nurse and I do a special Halloween episode. And it's always so much fun because we do some spooky story, you know, some silly haunted hospital or something like that. And so that's what this sort of reminded me of. It was David's idea to do this. And I was like, oh, I like it. So it's yeah. sort of like, you know how they have Christmas in July? This is sort of like Halloween in February. <laughs> and Tina, that's what I love about you. I didn't actually think that you would jump on this idea. I just kind of threw it out there and had no idea what I was talking about. Um, but you found a story. You found a good nurse, a, a good nurse and a bad nurse here. Um, and it's really a fascinating tale. I know. I've told you guys before, I can just about find a good nurse, a bad nurse, uh, some medical professional in almost any story. I I challenge you to send me a story because <laughs> <laughs> I I I'll figure out a way. You heard so, it, listeners. Send the mm -hmm. most random story to Tina and she will find something that she can use. So having said all of that, this is the story of the Salem witch trials. I was fascinated when you emailed or texted me about that and were like, hey, how about we do the Salem Witch Trials? And I was like, Can, is it possible to figure out a way to do this? And it took two seconds to, to figure out, of course, because guess what? It was a doctor who started the whole thing. And was it a big thing? It was a massive thing. It, it only lasted a year. And yet, 300 years later, we're still talking about it. So... I guess we can get started talking about this story. It's disturbing. 
Uh, on so many levels. It, it it really is. Mainly to me, it, the most disturbing thing about it is the thought that something like this could happen because of ignorance and, and, and not just ignorance, also people using mass hysteria to their own political benefit. If they figure out, oh, we can cause people to get hysterical about something by spreading lies and mis- and, and you know misinformation then i can use that to my political gain or financial gain yeah and and tina it, it was really hard for me not to find the modern equivalent to this mass hysteria and, and recent things that happened in in our capital um, and it kind of shows you that people never really change and there's always out there's always somebody out there to take advantage of other people's insecurities, and sometimes their ignorance. So this is the story of Dr. William Griggs and the Salem Witch Trials. So the Salem Witch Trials, they did, I said, they lasted a a little over a year. They took place in Massachusetts, which it's funny, every time Q Q the nurse and I do an episode together, it it seems like I randomly come up with some story. And inevitably, as I'm researching the story, somebody's from Boston. And, and he, if we started this a long time ago and we started recording together. I feel like every time we would start talking, I'd be like, and so-and-so is from Boston. And then he would, he would be like, is this on, are you doing this on purpose? And I'm not, it just happened. So <laughs> in January in 1692, Reverend Samuel Paris had a daughter. Uh, his daughter was nine. And then also a niece who lived with them. She was 11. So we have a couple of, of little girls, Elizabeth and Abigail were their names. And so 9 and 11, I, you know, 300 years ago, I don't know. I feel like things were so different and people were different. People married at very young ages mm-hmm. back then. So it was 9 and 11 almost like teenagers nowadays? Yeah, they were definitely middle-aged. <laughs> they were middle-aged. <laughs> Because I, when I think of nine and my when my children were nine and eleven, they were they were children. You know, they were definitely children. But maybe three hundred years ago, at nine and eleven, maybe you were almost an adult. You know, because if you could be married by the age of fourteen or fifteen, then I would say at at eleven, you must must be pretty far along. But I don't know. I just I, that's just sort of a random thought that I had because uh, as a mother, I kind of think about about these things. You know, when I when I read these stories. So they started having these fits and both of these girls are having fits at the same time. They would writhe around on the floor. So I immediately imagined, uh, David, you and I were talking before uh, we started recording about horror movies and uh, I've been making fun of you about your um, the ba- where the the room where you've been doing your recording because it looks like you're in a dungeon and then you, of course you've got a a phony background now on your. I know oh, this is actually Zoom. my house, Tina. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so, but it's hilarious because I'm. I keep promising people that you really haven't been held captive by anyone, but um, it does. This reminds me of when I think about someone writhing around to the floor and contorting their their bodies into these weird positions, like unnatural positions. That's what I think of the ring and those movies where these the, the people, the creepy people, are like their whole body. You hear you hear the cracks and ugh, it's so weird. I don't know yeah. if you've seen those movies or well, not. There's but. a long tradition in cinema, horror cinema in particular, um, about people who are possessed by other mm-hmm. people and their bodies are, you know, controlled by another. And I think that's 
kind of, well, I don't know if that's what happened here, but I think that's what people thought was, was happening here during this time. Yes. I, th- I think that was probably the first thought. They call the doctor. So according to one article, Reverend Paris and his wife, their first instinct was to pray about the situation. They obviously very religious people. And at the time there were, I would say there probably there still are religious people who believe in demonic possession um, and that sort of thing. And on different levels, there probably are a lot of people that honestly really believe believe in that. I'm not going to say one way or another what I believe about that just because it's so, <laughs> this is a weird topic. But um, they, in addition to praying about it, they also asked for local physicians to come see them. And so they had a few physicians that would come by, look at the girls, you know, lay the stethoscope, stethoscope on their chest. Did they have stethoscopes like, back then, you think? I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> like, I just imagine doing an assessment, head to toe assessment. <laughs> and they're like writhing on the, and like, excuse me, could you lay down? Because I really need to listen to your breath sounds. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they didn't know, they had no idea what in the world was wrong with these girls. They had no idea. And so a a doctor by the name of William Griggs comes along and he was in his late 70s. I would say 300 years ago, that was a little, um, not to be ageist or anything, but that sounds kind of up there. Yeah. (laughs) So He was basically um, a mummy. He was living on borrowed time. Yeah. He probably did not have too many teeth. No, surely not. One or two. (laughs) <laughs> one or two. <laughs> so actually he did die in uh, 1698 and this was 1692. So um, he really was living on borrowed time. A little bit of backstory on him, on Dr. Griggs, since he is our bad doctor, he was married to Rachel Hubbard and Rachel, the the, the Hubbard name, just kind of keep that in mind for a little bit later in the story. They married in 1657. Rachel was apparently in her mid sixties. And according to an article that I read, there really wasn't any proof that he had any formal medical training. I got, I don't even know what kind of formal medic- medical training would have would have been around uh, in the mid 1600s. But he basically most likely studied medicine on his own. It was a hobby. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a side gig. Yeah. So he and his wife had lived in the Salem Village area for about two years. And he was probably trying to establish himself as a credible physician. So um, as we get back to the reverend and and his two girls, after several doctors had been by to see them, give their unhelpful opinions, Dr. Griggs came by and he diagnosed them with being afflicted by an evil hand. And so this just started uh, this nonsense that we're still talking about in 2021. <laughs> Have you not seen that on a patient's problem list at work, Tina? The, um, you know, cardiovascular, lungs, evil hand. Mm-hmm, evil hand. I've seen some interesting things on some, uh, the history that kind of comes up on the, on the S bar that's printed out. S bar. Uh, and you'll look and be like, what? What is it? Like the history, you know, will be on there from maybe a few years ago when mm-hmm. they came in for something and you're just like, okay, this ought to be, <laughs> this ought to be good. Cause if they came, <laughs> you know, a few years ago for that, but uh, no, never have seen evil hand. That one have not seen that. Mm-hmm. Just evil foot. Yeah. 
Evil foot, maybe. Evil afoot. (laughs) Well played, Tina. (laughs) So a little backstory on this whole situation that led up to the Salem witch trials and the Salem witch hunts, whatever you want to call it. Um, From the 1300s through the 1600s, there were a lot of religious people who believed that Satan had the ability to give people power um, if they would profess their loyalty to him. So the people who entered into one of these contracts with Satan were commonly referred to as witches. So during this time, there was sort of a frenzy of people accusing women of being witches. So there were tens of thousands of people executed because they were supposedly witches. And most of these people, of course, were women. So the Salem witch trials happened, you know, at the end of the 1600s when that dark period in history was coming to an end. But it it, it just sort of helps explain how it could have happened because that that all happened in Western Europe. That all kind of that, you know, 300-year period happened in Western Europe where people were being executed um, and accused of being witches. And it just fascinates me that why why females? It's always if I feel like this sort of thing would never happen to men for some. Yeah, reason. I mean it's a, a long, you know, history of hurting marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a prime example of that happening. Mm-hmm. Although there were some men who were also accused of being witches. Yes. And I'm sure if if you have uh, an opportunity here to execute someone based on this sort of vague, really something that you can't really prove. Someone who has political clout, I'm sure, would be able to be like, you know, I really need to get rid of this person. (laughs) Male or female, you would use that to your advantage, would you not? I absolutely would. (laughs) After Dr. Griggs diagnosed the reverence girls, there were two other girls, Ann Putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard. And I, I... told you guys to remember the name Hubbard. So uh, Elizabeth Hubbard was Dr. Griggs' wife's great niece. Okay, Dr. Griggs' wife's great niece. So she came to live with the Griggs and was sort of a live-in servant. And she was also one of uh, the people who became an accuser at some point. So just to sort of sum up, a man trying to establish a name for himself trying to establish a medical practice, diagnoses two girls as being afflicted by witchcraft. Then a woman who lives with this man and his wife suddenly um, is afflicted by it also and starts accusing people. I mean, I'm just saying that that's just the reality of what happened. And it sounds a little quirky to me. Very suspicious. It's very suspicious. So one of the people accused of witchcraft was a midwife by the name of Elizabeth Proctor. And her being a midwife, she is going to be in direct competition with Dr. Griggs because, hello, they help people, you know, deliver babies. And if you're a woman, would you rather uh, some old doctor come and help you deliver your baby? Or would you rather a woman? Yeah. Yeah, the whole tooth thing. That's a big deal. I would rather have a woman, you know, help deliver my 
child than a toothless mm-hmm. old man, for sure. Absolutely. So she is definitely in direct competition with Dr. Griggs. And this is all me putting in my my little opinion about it, but I, I don't I don't have a problem. Uh, it's three hundred years. What are they going to do? Sue me? So I'm just you know uh, some of these older. That's why I love doing stories <laughs> from a long time ago. I can say whatever I want to. There's and I don't no have way to you can like, be sued. <laughs> well, I I do, and it's not just about being sued. It's also just I don't want to offend. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't uh-huh. want to. I don't want to make a false ac- accusation about anyone, and I don't want to. I don't want a family member or a friend of someone to be listening somehow accidentally stumble upon this podcast and hear me say something disrespectful about their loved one. Um, So yeah, I do. I I try to be a lot more careful if if it's a more modern story. So with these stories, I can be just kind of comfortable and say whatever I want to because I I don't think, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure there's not going to be anybody around who is going to be directly related to these people. I mean, it depends on how long witches live. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I probably need to be careful. Be careful, Tina. Well, Dr. Proctor, uh, or this, or the midwife, sorry, Elizabeth Proctor was accused of causing a man's death because she didn't call Dr. Griggs when he first got sick. So the man's stepdaughter claimed that his spirit, or they, what they called a specter, came to her in a vision and told her that if they had called Dr. Griggs, he wouldn't have died. I, I don't know. I mean, that sounds very suspicious to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I'll let people form their own opinion about it. But it, uh, when I read that, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious to me. So there was also a doctor by the name of Dr. Toothaker or Toothaker, which I thought was hilarious because surely he's a dentist if his name is Dr. Toothaker. I mean, I think doctors but, back then pretty much did everything. You know, if you were a dentist, you were also a barber. You could also deliver <laughs> yes. kids. You could pretty much do what you mm-hmm. wanted to do. There was no formal training for any of these physicians. Mm-hmm. Well, this Dr. Roger Toothaker was also in direct competition to Dr. Griggs. He was apparently accused of witchcraft as well. And some of the girls accused Rachel Griggs, who's, you know, Rachel is uh, Dr. Griggs' wife, of witchcraft, but nothing ever came of those accusations. That's amazing. Very convenient. Mm-hmm. On February 29th, there was this sort of town meeting where the girls were forced to name the names of the witches who had afflicted them. They wanted to know who who is it that's causing all this trouble. And so they named three different women. There was a homeless woman. Her name was Sarah Good. Tituba was a servant from the Caribbean of, of Reverend Paris. And then there was um, an elderly woman who was really poor. Her name was Sarah Osborne. And from what I understand... Um, the whole uh, witch frenzy that took place over several hundred years in Europe, for the most part, it was you know elderly, poor people, and it, there were no witches who were wealthy um, <laughs> or of a higher and a higher class. It was they were all, um, like you said, marginalized people, people who were to them, I guess, considered disposable. If you're rich, you can't be a witch. If you're rich, you can't be a witch, apparently. So on May 27th in 1692, 
the governor, who was William Phipps, ordered a special court for all the counties of the area. Bridget Bishop was an older woman from the area who was maybe not very well liked. She had a bit of a reputation for spreading gossip and being promiscuous. So she testified that she didn't have anything to do with witchcraft. She said she was, quote, as innocent as the child unborn, but she was found guilty on June 10th and she became the first person to be hanged for witchcraft. And eventually that whole, of course, started the whole um, Salem witch trials. Yeah, and and Tina, from you know, we both watched the same movie that kind of went over the history of this and mm-hmm. pretty disturbing images of the whole town coming out to watch these hangings, you know, these little kids just standing there um, mm-hmm. watching people die very slowly. It's kind of disturbing and it feels almost like kind of mass hysteria that people would allow this to happen and consider it normal. Well, I thought so too. And then as I was kind of looking through and doing some research about it, there is a play that was, that, um, was written in the, the mid 20th century around the 1950s by Arthur Miller called The Crucible. Mm-hmm. And I read that. that's obviously, yeah, it's a very popular play. It's a classic, but it is centered around the Salem witch trials, but it also sort of uses the Salem witch trials as an analogy to something that happened in the around that same era, which is the McCarthy hearings and McCarthyism and all of the things that happened. And that's relatively modern for us, if you think about it. And um, that's not that long ago that, that one man was able with abs- nothing but lies and just a total fiction made up so many things about people just for his own political gain and and it was found out but he also ruined a lot of lives um i don't know if you guys are familiar with mccarthyism it it was a long time ago i wasn't certainly i was certainly not alive at the time but i love history so when i was looking into this i was like oh my gosh yes this is so much like mccarthyism and what happened because he was able to just one speech that he gave in west virginia he was able to stir up people by suggesting that there were people in Congress who were communist. He had no, no proof of this whatsoever, but he just said it. And then this, he's giving a speech to, to Republican people uh, at the time. He, you know, he, he was a Republican and he was giving a, a speech to, to his constituents in West Virginia. And I don't know that he expected it to get the attention that it did because he's just giving a speech and then the press gets a hold of it. And the next thing you know, he's getting asked, like, who are these people? We need names. We need names. <laughs> and so he has to come up with names. And I feel like, you know, Arthur Miller that wrote the, the play, The Crucible was just genius because it is, it feels exactly like that. And I don't have a problem whatsoever. And I'm just giving my opinion. And I do think that these girls probably were just doing something for attention and it went a little too far. And then when a a, a doctor comes along who needs patients, right? He needs to have, he's he's got a a practice, um, a medical practice. And he it's almost like he he came in and he just wanted to come up with something and he couldn't come up with anything else. And he was just like, um, 
well, I don't know, um, witchcraft. And it just <laughs> ding, took ding, off. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. He's like, oh my gosh, witchcraft, witchcraft. <laughs> it's, it's witchcraft. And it, and, it, and it just took off. And then people all around were just like, you know, I can use this. And it just, that's what I think happened. And every, all the powerful people in power would just be like, you know, I, could, I can get rid of people, you know, that are in my way. And well, I could use it to my benefit. And it, it just spun out of control. And that's exactly and, what happened to in with the McCarthy era and all of the things that happened with that. And you guys, go, you should go Google that and look it up if you're interested. It's and you should also also uh, Google witch cake. Did you remember that part, <laughs> Tina? So the witch cake is, and again, so disturbing to think. It was just a tool that was used to identify um, witchcraft. Aside from, so if, if someone was diagnosed with um, having the evil hand, they could then, they would take rye and the urine of the bewitched person. Let's not ask how they got that. Ew. Yeah. And they would make this cake with it and feed it to a dog. And if the dog had the symptoms, then, okay, witchcraft. There you go. It's, and then the, it was the, definitely witchcraft. The dog would point out the witch, right? Is that right? I believe that the dog would eat the cake and then... Mm-hmm they would gravitate towards the witch and that would be how they would find out who was causing the spectral visits. What I, the, the account that in the article that I read about the witch cakes, um, I read that they, the dogs, if they ate the witch cake and they started having convulsions, mm. you know, uh, they started having sort of these symptoms, then, oh, that person's a witch. That's what I read. Now you might have read a different account because, uh, come on, this is th- this was three hundred years ago. We could all just make up crap, and <laughs> whatever I you mean, want to. I think the last time I ate urine cake, I I got a real tummy ache. I mean, there must have been some witches around. So one another interesting thing uh, that it, back in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, a scientist came forward. I believe her name was Linda. Um, I can't, oh gosh, now I, I don't, I want to give her credit, but this woman came up with the idea that it could possibly be ergot poisoning, Linda mm-hmm. Caporal, Linda Caporal, 1976. And she, what she was saying is that ergot is a, it's a fungus and it would grow on, on rye and rye was a staple for the people in this community, they would use it for their breads. So if you think about it, it legitimately could have been causing hallucinations. It's one of the the, um, symptoms or side effects or adverse effects of this ergot of ingesting it is hallucinations um, and convulsions. So maybe that that could have caused it. The problem that I have with that though that theory, which I, I appreciate someone coming up with a legitimate, you know, somewhat scientific, scientific. theory. The problem I have with that is that uh, why did it only affect women? Yeah, I mm. think that theory has been poo-pooed. Yeah. Um, although I do agree it's interesting. There's other things probably more on a social level that are going on. I'm pretty sure. That's that's where I kind of landed after reading um, all the articles that I did and watching the documentaries. I I came real close to watching a three, almost four hour long Kersey Alley movie that <clears throat> apparently is some kind of mini series that was done by the History Channel, which I'm sure was historically accurate. But at the same time, 
I don't have four hours to give to watching that. So I didn't watch it, but... No, I almost watched it too with my wife, but um, we decided that we just couldn't take three hours of Chrissy Alley. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Chrissy Alley. I like Chrissy Alley. But um, anyway, I just, I couldn't handle that one. But I did watch a lot of other like shorter you know documentaries, one from Nat Geo and... I feel like, you know, after kind of coming away from that and looking at all the different theories that it has to just be that these girls were just messing around, just trying to get attention and got the wrong kind of attention. And then they, I'm sure, also got some power. I mean, they accused their their servant that lived with them. So... They're family members. One, one girl, um, I think she got her grandfather killed. So he, he was, was her was he abusive? Was he did did he in some you know why? What would cause them to accuse these people? Because look, if I'm thinking rationally about this, I don't believe that these girls were were somehow had some sort of spell cast on them by witches. So that didn't happen, and I kind of I don't think that it doesn't make sense to me that only females would be afflicted by some any sort of um, virus or, um, you know, allergen or anything like that that would be going on in the area. So it has to be that this was on purpose. You know, someone was, it was fraud. The, these girls were doing this. So if they were accusing people, I feel like they had some sort of ulterior motive for it. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. Like I said, I can say whatever I want to. <laughs> Whether it being just getting attention or mm-hmm. um, maybe even getting um, some handouts from the people who were prosecuting these people. Because there was well, lots of property stolen during this time. Well, the thing is, once this got, and, and this all took place a little over a, over a little over a year period, but once it sort of took hold, there, there, were, there was already a lot of... Um, strife among some of the villagers in this area. There were a lot of people that were moved into this area. Kind of, they were displaced for lots of reasons, um, things that were going on um, politically, but which I don't even want to get into because I wouldn't even have a clue. I, I don't even know. I don't know. I'm stupid. What do I know? But oh, Tina, I just don't know say that. that. I just know that there were a lot of things that were going on at the time. Uh, that would ca- that caused there to be um, groups of people in this village who were against each other, and they were fighting over land, and they they were fighting over power, and the, this happens, and it becomes an opportunity to get rid of some of your enemies yeah, and well, gain their land. One of the things that was happening, Tina, was there was a dispute over building a new church. So for a long time, these people in Salem Village were walking five miles to go to church in the Salem township and one half of the town wanted to build a new church that was quite close and the other half of the town did not want to do that because it would just be lots of taxes. So if you look at the geography of Salem village, it was literally one half of the town accusing the other half. Like it's a real on the other, on the, on the wrong side of the tracks thing. It's, you know, very sick. One thing that I, I feel like is so important for us to remember is that we may think that, oh, we're, we live in a modern era now where we have information, we're all, you know, most of us are educated and we can make informed decisions rather than being hysterical. But we are still capable of 
of this sort of spreading of misinformation and getting people all worked up. And if you get enough people together of who are of like mind and not apt to listen maybe to information and to educated uh, people or, you know, people of science who have proven their point, but rather listening to people who are just spouting off information that is not at all proven, but they just, whatever comes off the top of their head, we're, we're in danger of anything like this happening again at any time. It's, so I, I just feel like it's important to talk about history in order to not repeat um, the mistakes of the past. We have to mm-hmm. keep talking about these things because it's, it's, it's scary. It's scary to me that this many people could... Because when it was all said and done, over 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft and 20 were executed. 20 people in a little over a year were executed or put to death. There, there aren't that many people put to death. I don't... I mean, I... Again, once again, someone is going to email me. Stop talking. <laughs> if you haven't done your research, I haven't done any research on this, but I feel like I know in the state of Tennessee, we have the death penalty and we don't execute that many people every year. I, I think sure. it's safe to say that people used to be put to death a lot more in the past mm-hmm. than they are today. Right. But you know, we also have a pretty horrible prison system as well. We have a terrible prison system. Um, oh my gosh, don't even get me started. Uh, <laughs> I've talked about this before about the death penalty. There is an entire podcast that I did. I've I've gone on other podcasts and talk about my and have talked about my take on the death penalty, and what I believe and what I don't believe. But I won't go into that right now. But and I am very passionate about it. But I try to stay away from political stuff on here because I don't. I, I want to focus more on the medical aspect of it and the healthcare field and trying to improve. Um, the health the healthcare field itself, and I feel like if we digress too much over into politics and you know specific things like that, it cre- it's so divisive. It just people just immediately just were like, oh, I don't, I don't now I don't want to listen to what you have to say because you don't agree with me. I don't, I don't believe you know you don't agree exactly with me on your political beliefs, and so therefore I don't want to listen to you. And I think it's sad. I think that there sh- it, we should be able to disagree with each other and um, be civil about it and talk about it, you know? But um, I want to try to, I want to improve the healthcare field. That's the goal of this podcast is to try to bring people together. And I, I feel like politics, are, it's so divisive. So I just try to stay away from it if at all possible. So one thing that, um, one really interesting thing that I saw when I did my research was um, how people would identify witches and one of the key signs of a witch was that they would have something called witch's teats. Do you remember that part of the... No. What? <laughs> I, I, I missed that. Some, I must have dro- dozed off. So basically, the, um, the devil who you made a contract with um, would communicate with these witches um, through a familiar animal like a bird or a mouse. Mm-hmm. And these animals would come back and suck on the teats of the witches, leaving a mark. <laughs> so they would examine these people for oh, anything gosh. they could call a witch's teat. <laughs> I'm going to stop trying to make sense of that. I just yeah. can't even. I mean, I, I, th- I guess it's important. This, my point is, is that so much of this was based on strange folklore traditions and very, very little science, yeah. which is why they were able to get away with it. 
Well, I do think that there is a lot of mistrust when it comes to people who are in power, you know, and and so people who don't have the power, I I can understand why, but they 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 don't trust always the people who are in power. And so it's I feel like it is easy for someone who's charismatic and well-spoken to come along who maybe has some credentials behind them to come along and gather some people under their wing and be like, hey, this is what's really going on. And then them jump on that and go, I knew it all along. I don't know. I just feel like that's sort of that mentality that people people who um, aren't in power, that they love conspiracies. They love to think, you know, there's something going on that, and there probably is to, to an extent. There's, people have ulterior motives who are, everywhere. There's always somebody with an ulterior motive. So, but um, it's scary to me to think that uh, people, you would put people to death, you know, based on lies and misinformation. So. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing that I learned um, is that a lot of these people didn't actually know what they were doing. You know, they call it unintentional fraud. um, And another term for it is like mass psychogenic disorder in which everybody's craziness starts to spread and then it feeds off each other and then it becomes this completely different um, com- com- completely different animal than it was before. So it starts off small, but then it becomes a really crazy situation in which, you know, hundreds of people are accused of something that's completely ridiculous. Right. I, 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 I don't doubt at all that there, there are people who are easily influenced um, and and their minds, in mind, the mind is very powerful, and it can play tricks on you if you if you let it. And you, it, I I think that something like this could definitely prey on the weak minded, um, people who are susceptible to that sort of thing. Maybe even people who have some mental health issues. That um, uh, I don't know, but I um, I think it's really sad and unfortunate. But at least it did end, and. Uh, the according to one article, the colony eventually did admit that the trials were a mistake, and they compensated the families, yeah, of the of the people who were executed. So, at least there's that. So I guess we could talk about our good nurse story, which is our, our actually a good doctor, since we had a bad doctor. So this, um, I've been wanting to do a story, I, um, an episode on the Tuskegee trials or the, the Tuskegee um, events that happened. You know, the Tuskegee Institute, it's a very prestigious uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful institute, but sometimes it the events that occurred um, are kind of what you think of when you first um, think about Tuskegee, unfortunately. And so I've been wanting to do an episode that's kind of sets things, the record straight a little bit on that institution. Our good doctor this week is about um, a black New Jersey doctor who joined a coronavirus vaccine trial. And this was um, this article that we're reading was from NewJersey.com, but it's it was updated back in December. Um, but this was obviously happened before that because it was before the vaccines were available. But this is about Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh. And she basically signed up to do this because she wanted to 
show people that it, it was okay to get the vaccine. She she understands um, because of surveys that are done that there are a lot of Black Americans who are hesitant to get um, vaccinated. I feel like there's a lot of Black Americans who are hesitant to get healthcare in general. And, um, you know, there are a lot of African-Americans that come into the hospital that have sort of similar medical problems. And I wonder if it's because they are hesitant to go to the doctor because they don't trust, they don't trust the healthcare field. They don't trust that doctors are going to even listen to them or believe them because it, it happens. There, there's definitely um, prejudice. Yeah, I mean, it's documented that there's mm-hmm. a much higher chance of dying in the hospital if you're African-American as opposed to if you're white. Um, often doctors will not listen to the complaints of African-American patients, but they will do so to white patients. So there's a lot of suspicions in these communities um, because, you know, honestly, they they deserve to be suspicious. It, it's mm-hmm. smart. So what this doctor, Dr. Fitzhugh, she, what she's saying is that she totally understands the mistrust. It makes perfect sense. But she wants to try to overcome that and recruit, recruit more people of color um, because obviously it is to their advantage. They are affected more um, just as a population by the, the, by COVID once, you know, once, once they get it. It's, it's sad really to see if you, a, a certain person come into the hospital that has COVID that develops into the, into pneumonia. If they're an African American male in their like in their, uh, maybe above fifty, it's scary because you're just thinking, oh my gosh, it, it, I don't know why, but for some reason that population is is definitely at high risk. Well, it just points out to the inequities of our health system. You know, mm-hmm. with COVID, if you have comorb- comorbidities before you get sick. Mm-hmm. you're much more likely to die from the disease. And if you come from a community that doesn't is not given equal access to healthcare or equal access to good food, good medicine, mm-hmm. um, then you're much more likely to die from the disease. It's true. There are some other genetic things that go along with, with Black people in the Black community. And it has to do with um, coagulation issues. They... Uh, Black people are more likely to have sickle cell. There is something uh, in the bloodstream there that makes them uh, more susceptible to coagulation problems. And so there's definitely a physiological aspect to it that is specific to Black people. And I say that uh, because, you know, you cannot get around that. There is no denying it. I have never cared for a white person with sickle cell. Neither have I. I have cared yeah, well, and I've never carried, never, I mean, I'm sorry, I have cared for many black people with sickle cell, many. And it's awful. It's excruciating to see them in a sickle cell crisis. It's so painful. So there's an aspect to that that, you know, you you want to address it. And I think people hesitate to say say that sort of thing because they don't want to be perceived as racist. But that's it's not racist to say that this happens more in this population. That's just pointing out an observation, and it's also saying, "Hey, I want you to, I want you to get medical care. Go find a doctor or a, a provider that you trust, because you, 
you need, you deserve to have these, um, these things attended to, right? Sure. And so was this doctor successful in kind of increasing um, the trust in the community to get vaccinated for COVID? I don't know that there was any sort of follow-up that necessarily says, okay, so this many people, but she just sort of put out there what happened to her uh, when she, when she got the vaccine. She just said her experience and she just, that was what she wanted to do. She wanted to just be a voice and be an example. I, I sort of did that too. I was hesitant to get the vaccine. I was a little afraid. And I mean, what she's talking about doing, she went, she did this in a trial before the vaccine was even approved. I was, a, I was hesitant to get it after it was approved and it, and it came out. I was kind of scared of it. But then I just decided, uh, here I am just trying to be um, a voice, I guess, for people in the healthcare field. I feel like I should probably try to be an example of the right thing to do. But I don't, at the same time, want to put pressure on people um, to do something. And that's exactly what she said, too. She said that she would never want to put pressure on someone or or um, guilt them into feeling like they had to do something. She just wanted to be an example mm-hmm. and, and to say, okay, I did this. This is what happened. I got the first injection. It hurt a little bit at the site, at the injection site. I got the second injection and I had a you know, maybe some symptoms uh, the next day, everything was fine. And so that was it. And so now she can tell people, you know, I did it and everything's fine. And and maybe that would cause a number of people who would not have done it before to get it, therefore not get COVID and not end up in the hospital on ECMO or needing a lung transplant or something. I mean, uh-huh. it's it's devastating what happens to these people. Tina, why were you hesitant about getting the uh, vaccine? Um, I was hesitant because when I got the flu shot back in the in the summer, I had an adverse reaction. I'd I never see. had an adverse reaction to anything before. I've I've always, I'm always like I'm never the person that has anything happen, and I got the flu shot while I was working, and I was I just. I honestly, I didn't think about it. I walked right over. They were giving them out at the nurse's station like candy. And I got in line and got my flu shot. And then I kept on working. And I had a student with me that day. And at some point, my eyes started hurting. And um, I remember just thinking, I don't feel right. And I said something to him. I said, I, I just, I don't feel good all of a sudden. And i I was trying to not say anything. And then I got to a point that I couldn't help it because I was I needed to just sit down. And he said, I was wondering if you were feeling okay because your eyes are like really red. And so, so I... You, you anaphylaxed. I don't know. My, thro- my throat was hurting. And I immediately thought, oh my gosh, I probably have COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I don't know. We've, I finished out my shift... Um, he he said something like, hey, do you think it was a reaction from the flu shot? And I was like, oh my gosh, it probably is. And then on the way home, I, I, I had a hard time seeing. My eyes hurt. They were just, it was so painful. And then I, I went home and looked it up and found some studies from uh, several years ago where this literally is a thing that happens. It can happen to women in their 40s. And it's just a neurological adverse reaction. And it was scary. I was like, 
I don't know. I was like, oh my gosh, this this is it. It makes it real when it happens. Something like that happens to you, then you realize that wow, the really bad thing could happen. Because then it was it only lasted like twenty four hours, and then it was over, mm-hmm. and I never thought about it again. Are but, you sure that you did not consume any urine cake in the break room I, that day? I'm pretty sure, but someone could have slipped it in. I think you might be a witch, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. a good witch. A very good witch. Oh, I would be Glenda the Good Witch from the North. Nobody would land a house on you. No. I hope not. So, I guess that's it for our episode. What do you think? It was pretty good. I learned a lot. It was good. Yeah. (laughs) So, remind everyone, Nurse Papa, where they can find you and your podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, you can find me on any of your favorite podcast platforms. The show is Nurse Papa. And what I would really love one of your viewers to do for me, Tina, if you're a parent or thinking about being a parent or know somebody who is a parent, write me a letter and I will feature it on my show. You can write david at nursepopofthebook.com and I would love to hear your problems and give a crack at it. Well, you guys know that you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse. You can find me on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse and on Facebook and Twitter, sort of a little bit um, at GMB and podcast. (laughs) So I guess that does it for another week. But I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Good nurse.